Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 518. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a very proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out the other shows on this wonderful network, please go and visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with my wonderful old friend, Charlie Gladstone. Charlie's a businessman, serial entrepreneur, creative director, speaker, and author. With his second book, Do Team, How to Get the Best from Everyone, published by the Do Book Company, Charlie describes it as a manifesto for gentle leadership. In this conversation, we discuss his roots in music, the lessons learned through running a variety of businesses, some of the key pointers from his book on leadership, when it comes to working with family, as well as with getting it right with your employees. We explore the role of art and novels, manners, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com. If you have a wee moment, would you go over and drop in a rating and review? And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Charlie Gladstone, my goodness, lovely to see you, to have you on my show. We've known each other for just a few years, although we haven't seen each other in probably as many. Uh, in your own words, Charlie Gladstone, who are you? Well, thank you very much, Minter. What an honor. You're right that we haven't seen each other for a long time. But of course, the beauty of social media, which is oft maligned, is that we have kept vaguely abreast of each other's goings on. Um, and um, so that that's kind of a joyous thing. And I think it's, um, as I say, it's off maligned. It's nice to know that it does good stuff as well. Um, I, I'm a creative entrepreneur, really, I think. I started my career in music, where I established a record label for Warner's Music, um, and then went on to manage a band. Um, I stopped doing that a very long time ago in 1994, and set up a um, what was then a mail order company called Peddlers, which um, had a catalog, um, which uh, remember those. And then I yeah. guess about 1999, converted into a an online business. And um, subsequent to that, um, I have um, that business has now been sold. I've launched a whole load of small businesses, including. Um, festival of culture and music um a um a farm shop a restaurant a pub um an, an events business um a holiday business um i've written and published a couple of books one with random house um on that called the family guide to the great outdoors and one with uh, do books called do team how to get the best from everyone and um I have done most of my work really based on a love of creating things, of creativity and um, of building spaces that um, are, I suppose, hospitality businesses, things that enhance people's lives, both the guests and the people that work in them. Um, and I think what I've realised, and this probably leads to sort of the essence of why we're talking, is that after a long time, I've realized that I'm I'm not really a business person. I'm really a people person. I think that there is a tendency to measure success of businesses financially. And of course, all businesses need to be financially successful in order to be viable. That, that's absolutely obvious. 
Um, but but that if I were to measure my success on the whole, it would be on hiring and retaining wonderful people. And I think that I thought many years ago that by this stage in my life, I am exactly the same age as you, um, that I would be someone who was quite rich and um, living in leisure. What I've understood is that I am not living in leisure. I work unbelievably hard because I love it. But that really the thing that I'll be remembered for, if indeed I'm remembered for anything, will be for um, enhancing people's lives, by which I mean, on the whole, those people are clearly my family. Um, but on the whole, those people who have worked for me and who I hope um, will remember the things I taught them. I love teaching people how I think the world of business should operate. And you get to put it in practice. I, I do. I mean, I have a number of small businesses. Um, before the pandemic, I employed, I think, quite substantially over 100 people. I do employ less now. I think it's probably more like 70 or 80. Um, that's probably been a natural evolution, which was inspired by the pandemic, rather than just a pandemic-focused um, issue. But I, I definitely um, get to put it into uh, application every day. I mean, in fact, I not only work with my wife, which is an interesting story in itself, in that I think there's a lot to learn about how to work with a partner. Uh, we've been married for 35 years. And so, you know, we, we've learned a lot about how to get on. But I also work with two of my daughters. And, um, and, and so I think I'm constantly concerned with legacy and family and i think that there is a tendency at work to treat employees or colleagues or whatever as sort of slightly different to friends and family and actually there is not a huge amount of difference the fundamental decency of how we should treat people shouldn't vary between home and work and of course if it doesn't then you are bound to get the best out of people. And I think this is a pretty elementary kind of idea that if you remember that everyone is someone's brother, sister, girlfriend, boyfriend, mum, dad, whatever, and you treat them accordingly, then you think absolutely almost without fail are going to get something better out of them. It doesn't mean that you have to forgive behaviour that is unacceptable or, or not speak your mind or not reprimand or whatever. But I think if you can get to a point where you are thinking about them as human beings that are every bit as important as you are, wherever you sit in the chain, and I'm assuming for the sake of this example that you sit at the top, then not only do they have a better life, but my goodness me, you get a hell of a lot better out of them. And I think that's a big thing. I think you will draw much more from people if you treat them as human beings. And I, I think that, you know, we, we live in a world where we pretend that kind of Gordon Gecko is a thing of the past and then watch ghastly programmes like The Apprentice or indeed um, Dragon's Den, which is one that we have in Britain, which is a sort of um, a programme where you have to go and pitch your business to four or five really aggressive um, uh, potential investors. Um, uh, but business really doesn't need to be like that. It doesn't need to be Trumpian or sugar and sugarian. Um, and um, I'm I'm really on a mission to try and take that business away from that. Fair game, Charlie. And um, certainly from you and I probably know lots of 
Gordon Gecko-esque type of people who probably working in some financial services area, earning hand over feet and making a misery of people's lives. I, I think that I think that's right. I mean, I, I, there are definitely people behaving like that. Um, but I think that we, you know, capitalism is inevitably going to have some people who behave in that way, in the Gordon Gecko way. I think that just generally, though, there is there is a, a misunderstanding of a what success is. In other words, how we measure our success in business, but b of how to get the best from people. And I think that my general philosophy would be that getting the best from people is is more about vulnerability candor pulling rather than pushing acceptance um thoughtful kind of engagement and that these are all things that are not instinctively regarded as necessary in the workplace um but but do really work. I mean, I think at the root of what I'm really interested in is probably emotional intelligence, which I think is is defined most broadly as understanding your own emotions and then understanding how to control them and not repress them, and then understanding the emotions of others around you and, and trying to figure out how to exist with those. And um I think that this kind of this this inevitably therefore leads to a kind of kindness um and and a measured um way of behaving in the office or in in the workplace and i i just have a sense that this on the whole has not been how work has been seen and i i am thinking to an extent about sort of professional classes but i'm but also you know the the appalling sort of way in which companies um big you know global megacorps that are having people in warehouses and call centers and all the rest of it, the appalling ways in which they treat people. They, they, these can't conceivably get the best out of people. I mean, it, it is absolutely impossible that that is the way to get the best out of people. So I, I'm, really, I'm, I'm really thinking about the idea that if we apply emotional intelligence to the office space, we're going to get an, a, a much better um, much better reaction from people. And I think that this applies to people, whether they are literally single individual sole traders or people managing big companies. I mean, if you're sitting at, at home or in a shared workspace and you're working for yourself, you still have endless interactions with everyone from at one extreme, from the delivery person um, to the bank manager. And if you treat the delivery person with decency and say, hey, listen, thanks, what's your name? Um, oh, hi, nice to meet you, Jenny. Um, thanks so much for doing this. You you really are brilliant. Then there's no doubt that Jenny feels better about herself. And also, of course, that Jenny will then think the next time she delivers a package and you're not in, what can I do to help rather than just lobbing it over the hedge? Um, and equally with, you know, at the other end, as it were, of the food chain with the person who's loaning you money or the, you know, whatever, um, the, there is this sense that you have to... Um, you know, you you have to be decent with your bank manager. Your and and people, I I think people just endlessly react to kindness. And um, I I think there are, of course there are Gordon geckos. Um, and good luck to them. They make a lot of money, and um, and they're generally miserable. And um, I have no um, I have no um empathy with them at all. I mean, at the end of it all, when you are 
wheeled down the aisle or lobbed onto the funeral pyre or whatever it is, the legacy that you leave is not going to be, oh, this person was the first person to have the, that new four-wheel drive Bentley, um, or they had the biggest house in the village. And they remember they had that swimming pool heated by, you know, the latest technology. It'll be, you know, this person made a real difference to my life because when I was struggling at work, they showed me how to get it right. Um, they gave me time when I was suffering from depression. Um, they taught me more than anyone else ever taught me because they would just constantly be patient with me. And those those really fundamentally are the legacies that I think that we need to, we want to leave. And, you know, at the end of it all, um, if we apply them in life, then they will be the legacies that we leave. In any event, Charlie, what I would say is that that would be your legacy. And and in the end of the day, if if the other person is only interested in having the big house, it'll be a, a short-lived legacy because it doesn't have any remnants. So if you're if you're talking to the uh, others and, and you want to prescribe this notion of success, how do you how do you define success and how would you help somebody else to define success? Look, I mean, fundamentally, Minter, I, I understand that we all need to work and we all need to make money. I mean, that is a fundamental. And for me, my success has been partly um, predicated on making enough money to live a certain type of lifestyle. I mean, there is no doubt about that. But but I would say to people, I, I would define my success as my ability to hire and retain great people and probably, if not retain them, for them to be able to say in 10 or 15 years after leaving me, you know, when I work with Charlie and the, or the Gladstones, I really, they, they really taught me everything. And, um, and what they taught me more than anything else was the value of kind of empathy, using emotional intelligence, creativity, of listening, of being patient, um, and of not gossiping and, and endless things like that. And I suppose that that is how I would choose to define success, partly out of necessity. I mean, partly because, you know, I have not made a fortune and I don't expect I'll make a fortune anytime soon. But the, the, but there's no doubt that, that anyway, the more that you learn to think and listen intelligently and with empathy and sympathy, the better you become at your job anyway. Um, I mean, I think it's very interesting that, that um, you and I, in common with many other men, were brought up in a world where I'm not convinced that listening was entirely valued and that he who shouted loudest or who walked with the most swagger would probably win. And um, I think that this, is, this has become blatantly apparent that that is kind of what so many um, politicians have been brought up with. Um, I'm talking generally about about white males, but it seems to be the case. Um, and so many captains of industry. Um, but I think that they are the world may or may not be changing. I think it is changing, but but I think they more fool them because they're not getting the best from people by listening. So I, I'm sort of slightly digressing from the um, from the question there. But I mean, I think that you it's success should be about the ability to empathize and listen because that gets things done and ultimately we're talking here about success at business and um and and that is a, a really good way of getting things done and this isn't some kind of uh, 
hippie manifesto. I mean, I do think that one has to know when to, you know, and I hate jargon, but, but you know, when to play the power dynamic. I think that there is a sense in which sometimes you have to say, you know what, guys, this is the way we're going. And I don't care whether you like it or not. Um, and I think that one does have to be sensitive, but I think one also has to develop a hell of a thick skin. And um, I think that the value of making um, really quick, strong decisions and sticking with them is a really important um, skill. Um, so I don't think it's all about sitting around going, hey, man, how are you feeling? Um, listen, let, let's... Kumbaya. You know, yeah, exactly. It's really not about that stuff. Um, it's about energy and drive. And, and I think, you know, success from from as a leader is actually a lot of it's about imparting that energy and drive, you know, about saying, um, you know what, guys, you're going to have to work later. You're going to have to work harder. Um, and, and and this is where, you know, interesting enough, it may surprise you, but I, I really have an interest in what um, Musk has been doing with Twitter, where I think he's been actually you know, trying to save the business. Um, he's he's obviously not done it in a way that pleases everyone. I get that. Um, but having, you know, having got in there and said, you know, you're going to have to work harder. There are too many of you. Well, this is what we're doing. We'll get it done. I have a sense in which, um, you know, this is probably not a popular opinion, but I have a sense in which people will look at Twitter in five years and go, wow, okay. You know, he may not have got every touch point nailed he may not have dealt with the actual fundamental of what it is that twitter does well which is allow conversations i mean i don't know i think twitter is is known for its toxicity as much as it is for its vital role that it plays in communicating important things in you know as it were all over the world particularly in, in disaster zones and all the rest of it but i mean it has to be a sustainable business and it clearly was not when he went in there. If I was one of the six or 7,000 people you made redundant by email, I would be as pissed off as they are. I get it. Um, but I do admire his, his sort of, you know, throwing his weight around because he's getting it done. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Uh, well, well, maybe we'll get into that in a second, but um, the the thought that goes through my head trying to listen to you is success is through the process, not the result. And in the process, part of it is the kindness, the listening, also the tough decision-making, and and that is what you really focus on as opposed to the bottom line at the end of the day that's an interesting observation i think that if i could flip it around i would say you are entirely right and it probably is a function of imposter syndrome which is something that i in common with many other people um, who don't really regard ourselves as adults 
suffer from endlessly. Um, I can hardly believe that I'm a 58, 59-year-old man with six children and three grandchildren. I feel like an imposter. So to an extent, that the reason that I raise that is I think that the result is, is never really achieved. It's like that thing when you're a kid and you're at university and or school and you think, when I finish these exams, I'm going to go absolutely ape with celebration. You walk out of the exams and you're like, right, what's on tomorrow? Um, and I think that's a function of being driven. It probably is your right to function of enjoying the process, but I don't see how a result can ever be achieved in business. I mean, if you're an artist and you paint a picture and you sell your first picture, you don't think that's the result. You think, I want to sell the next series. If you're um, Elon Musk and you make money out of X or Y, you know, on the at the other end of the scale, you no doubt think, what can I do next? And I think, I think that there is a sense by which you must enjoy the process because the process is the only thing, because there is not a result. I mean, you know, the businesses I've chosen to be involved in, I think, are peculiarly treadmill-like retail, restaurants, events, cultural events, because in a restaurant, you can have an unbelievable service. Everybody washes stuff up and puts it away. You start again at breakfast the next morning. Um, it's an extraordinary kind of treadmill. So you're right, you have to enjoy the process. And I think that this is probably the biggest cliche that we ever, that us humans share it, 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 at moments of kind of existential doubt or or whatever is, or out of despair is, you know, we've just got to enjoy the moment and the moment is the process. And I think that what we have to do is to try to find joy in our work. I think that doing work you enjoy is the greatest privilege, provided you don't live in poverty that you can actually have. Um, I th and I think that we have to therefore try to find not just work that we enjoy, but a way of working that we enjoy. I mean, I know plenty of, of um, people much younger than me, my children are in their 20s and 30s, who, who really have always wanted to be graphic designers or, or you know, filmmakers or whatever, and that they, they seem to kind of always be searching for, for the kind of end result rather than just saying, you know what, I love the process just of designing. And... Um, and, and I think that's probably where the value of creati creativity comes in. I met a really interesting guy in, in New York, actually, funnily enough, just two or three days ago, who said to me, I don't, I'm not sure, entirely sure I believed him, but um, I've yet to Google him, but that he was, he'd was he been a scriptwriter for all of his life, um, and he hadn't really ever sold anything. Um, he just made enough money to kind of get by, but he just loved being creative and that was enough for him and you know the opportunity was there I guess for him every day to get up and enjoy the process so um I think it's all about the process Minter I think and, and it's all about this trying to enjoy what you do every single day and that probably that's that's best achieved through decency and kindness but also the application of creativity i mean look at you you know you've made up your own thing you're doing it you're good at it but the real joy from it comes from the from the process i suspect um, no entirely 
I mean, you don't write. I don't write a book to make a, a million dollars. Well, I know, but even if you do write it, you'll think, right, I've done that one. What can I do next? <laughs> well, of course, you have to sell the book, as we will be talking about yours in a moment. But just before we get into that, Charlie, um, I was wondering to what extent your process has been informed by working with ones you love, as opposed to an entrepreneur who's not working with family, and to what extent that might have helped you in this uncovering of a love of the process and the insertion, I would even say, goes so far as to say, of love into work. Interesting, interesting question. First part of it is that I think it is very much chicken and egg. I mean, I suspect that our daughters joined us and my wife started working with me more because it was an environment in which they could feel comfortable. I think there's something interesting. I don't know how um, important it is, but in the fact that we are increasingly a female-led company, um, I think that that's made it easier for the ones that I love to come in. The ones that work with me are all women. Um, and I think that- Because does... your sons have not. <laughs> they haven't yet. No, they, they no. my sons don't hate me, I don't think. But but um, my eldest son is, is a graphic designer and, and works um, for an agency he loves. And my youngest son is just finishing university. Um, I hope they'll both work with us at some stage in the future. But so I think, I think that it, it, it probably has not, so much been informed by it as we had an environment into which they felt comfortable coming. I do think that there is um, nevertheless a kind of sense in which you get better and better every day. And, you, you know, if your ears are open and your eyes are open, you do learn from people just by stopping and looking at them. And I have learned a fair amount from the senior women that I have in my business about not throwing my weight around, not necessarily talking the loudest, not thinking I'm great. Um, so so that that is definitely, you know, that is 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 definitely a key thing. I think that they they came to the company probably because we had a um a culture that they could live with, but they've probably made it a better culture as a result. Does that sound? I mean, I can't even remember what the second part of your point was now, but I mean, I think that's yeah. The insertion yeah. of love, the, yes. the the role, the place for love at there's work. A, yeah, I mean, I think there's a place for love at, at work as there is everywhere else. I mean, I, I I think it's all people want to be valued. It, it's it's to be heard, to be seen, to be listened is all we want, and. Um, and I think that to, to do that is, is not complicated. You have to feel it, but you have to remember that you're not, you know, you're not the center of the universe. And, you know, you are, you, you are absolutely amazing, but you can be a total asshole and that everyone else is just as amazing as you. And, and of course, that has huge advantages in terms of creating a place of love, but also in terms of bringing people on, because it's very important when you get to a more senior stage in life to remember how good you were when you're in your mid twenties and thirties and, and how energized and how creative and hardworking you were and giving delegating can only come from a memory of that um, and allowing people the kind of ability to, or the space to express themselves is, is quite an important thing. 
I really like that, Charlie. It's a, a really strong image in my mind. Uh, it reminds me of sometimes rifling through old schoolwork and and you pick up an old essay. You know, I haven't done this in maybe, I don't know, five years, but oh my God, I don't even know what that word means. Or <laughs> what? I wrote about I wrote that way? That's not yeah. so bad after all. No, that's very true. I mean, I also, you know, I, I set up this record label for Warners when I was, I mean, I must have been 22 or something. And um, I had no previous experience as to how to set up a record label or anything. Um, we, I, you, had, I, you had no experience. At all. But I mean, I worked my backside off and, you know, I, I was highly kind of um, capable and creative. I mean, no doubt if I did it now, I'd do it completely differently. And, and the end result would be clearly you know, different, it would possibly be a lot better. But I mean, you know, when I think back to that person who was a young guy, I, I really think, wow, I need to be to really give my team, um, uh, you know, um, the opportunity to thrive. I mean, I, I am very, very naturally attracted to team members who are energetic and motivated and and a lot of people are not i mean i think this kind of strand of the conversation supposes that everyone is is you know as driven as i was when i was um you know that 22 year old or whatever making that record label but but i mean the ones that are i i just love and i've got one or two people who work for me who um you know are in their uh, several actually just a handful here in their 30s who the main thing I like about them is their drive and their energy and their passion. And I think that almost anything can kind of be made out of that. And I, I, I have this sense in many ways that when you interview people for a new job, that drive and that passion is almost the most important thing because you can then, you can then if you're clever, you can then help them to shape their job. Um, and I think that, that, that sort of, um, I think people are often, in, you know, slightly curious as to why I hire some people. But I think there's something that I can see in them that they've said or given off to me in an interview, which is really interesting. So, you know, for the sake of argument, that sort of question of what do you think about our company? You know, when they when they go, it makes it's just brilliant. I just love it. I've been a customer here for years. I just, you know, it's so you can kind of smell and feel that real enthusiasm. And I think that can really be shaped into something useful. I mean, I think the mistake I've often made is not bringing enough clear corporate structure to my business, by which I mean, not hierarchy, but process. This is the way that we do things. This is how we operate. This is the template you fill in. Because I think that a lot of, my sense is that the very best people are employees in, in entrepreneurs' bodies. But I sometimes forget that not everyone has that sort of entrepreneurial ability to make stuff up in the way that I do. And I think that so much of creativity or being creative is about being hyper-organized. And, um, and, and, and as well as being the greatest kindness, in my opinion, you can probably do to yourself being organized. Um, but I think that um, there is a sense in which if you can find someone who is those things, you can really shape them. And it really doesn't matter what their previous experience is before the interview. So 
the biggest mistakes I have made in terms of hiring people have always been around the idea that, you know, a, an agent or whatever has told me that this person is brilliantly qualified because they've worked for X, Y, and Z and just the person I need. And I'm thinking in my gut, I, I don't think they really get it. I don't think I really can really work with them and I don't really like them, but I've been told that they've worked for X, Y, and Z and, and probably they're just the person I need. Um, and, um, and, and, and that can't, you know, you can't, you can never get out of that. You can never make that work. And in my experience, it always ends in disaster because, um, I suppose, because you just sit on simple levels, don't really get each other. So Charlie, um, I wanted to think about people who are trying to recruit in the services industry in particular, hospitality and such because it, it seems to be that there is a, a lack of personnel, or at least there's a lack of people wanting to work. And as people are thinking about trying to attract and, and hire new, new talent, to what extent is knowing yourself important? Okay, so I mean, I think I think to, to qualify the answer, I mean, I think in the UK we're having a problem, and well, it's, it's pretty much everywhere in the West. Is it? Okay, in that's France, it. I mean, United I, States, so I, Canada, yeah. Australia. Okay, kind of annoying because I can't blame Brexit for it. Um, Afraid not. <laughs> knowing yourself as the interviewer, do you mean? I think both. Knowing yourself as the interviewer and hirer, and knowing yourself as a recruit to what extent do you feel it's important that they behind that motivation that you're talking about that actually it comes from a place of self-knowledge well or it's it, just it, a place of motivation yeah interesting in, in, interesting um i mean i think at the root of this problem is the is the simple fact that we have to try to persuade the consumer to spend more money on the things we're offering in order to make the job more attractive so we have to um, we have to be prepared. To, I mean, having been in New York, New York last week, I was quite blown away by how expensive a lot of restaurants have become. But then on the other hand, and I mean, I don't approve of their insane tipping system versus pay, but that's another matter. But I mean, I think that 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 we have to value the things we're purchasing, and and in my world where it's food and drink and artisan goods. The fundamental has to be that in order to attract people, we have to be able to charge our customers more so we can pay our staff more. Vicious circle. But in terms of knowing yourself, I mean, I think you just have to know what you really want to do. And, and, and that is hard. Um, so the best way to understand what you want to do is to do something that you enjoy. And that is best achieved by through people. I mean, I think you can do a job that you don't love if you have a great atmosphere in the in the workplace, if if you know if you don't love the subject matter, I mean, if you don't necessarily want to be a, a baker, just employed a new baker. We have a bakery, um, I, so I'm not talking about this person specifically. But if you don't absolutely love being a baker, but your colleagues on the floor are great, and your boss is you know interested in you and knows your name and asks you questions, and your your customers say, "My God, that's the best baked good I've ever." put in my mouth then you know frankly that that's that's good um so i think that it, it knowing yourself is an ongoing process 
I think you will only understand what it is that you want for, from life when you get it. And, and I think it feels good. And that's, uh, that I think is about those, you know, the, the people, the warmth, the, the, um, the, the engagement, the chatter. Um, I mean, I'm always impressed by, and I mean, people laugh when I say this sometimes, you know, I'm always impressed by when I go to certain supermarkets. I think it's great when I see staff just chatting because I think, you know, I think they must be allowed to chat. And I think that's necessary. And when I read reports of people in great big warehouses being kind of, you know, laser gunned because they stopped to go to the loo or whatever it is, I just think, well, how unspeakably miserable and inhumane. And so when I go to Tesco and I see people chatting away, I, I don't think, oh, my God, you know, they're so lazy around here. No one, you know, no one gives a monkeys. I think this is the stuff of life. This is oxygen. And um, and, and I'm glad they're allowed to do that. Um, you know, so that that's that's you know that that maybe is knowing yourself, knowing what you want, knowing what's important. And I, I really do admire people who who know what they want. I think generally we don't often know what we want until we're shown it. Yeah, you have to experience certain things. Um so let's talk a little bit about your book because this notion of conversation is something you 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 talk about. So your book is called Do team how to get the best from everyone this is your latest book and uh and so amongst the things you write about and is it's written with a uh a, a candor which is very very clear and very evident uh, in the reading you talk about the role of conversation so long as it's not gossip the question for you for you is to what extent uh do you believe in the place of meaningful conversation deep conversation, personal conversation at work, in the boardroom or on the shop floor? Hugely. I mean, I think interesting conversation is almost the greatest currency that we can have. And I don't think it has to be born of a great education or a particular um, eloquence. I think it is just something to do with being interested in stuff. And and one of the things that I think that... um, you know, the, the greatest gifts we can have is to find something that's interesting to us. And it literally doesn't matter what it is. I don't mind if someone collects Lego figurines and that floats their boat, or if someone is a, a world expert on Rothko. Uh, I don't think that matters. And I think, therefore, that listening to people is is really important. Um, I think that that meaningful conversation is kind of everything, but, but, but also so is chit-chat. You know, did you see this... Um, have you seen succession? Have you seen this or that? That's that's interesting. What I think is is I, I think what I think is really unpleasant, um, and we all do it to an extent, is gossip and bitching. And but I understand their defense mechanisms. I understand that that they are they are um, you know, that that they're they're just ways of saying I'm better than you. But I think that if one could try to discourage gossip, I think that's really important. I think that you can get two types of gossip in businesses. You can get gossip about people who work with you, but also about customers. And that is absolutely lethal. I mean, I did once employ a woman um, who was very capable um, in every other regard, but every time she put down the phone to a customer about something or other, she'd have some moan about, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, this person wants their invoice paid on time or, you know, whatever it is. 
And and that, of course, sets a really bad framework for how we engage with the people that we are selling to, who we have to see, we have to respect, we have to respect them. Um, but also, I think that if, if you were just to say, I'm not interested in any moaning, why don't we say good things? Why don't we say, um, uh, so nice to see that person. God, she looks fantastic. Um, uh, you know, um, she's so kind. She's so considerate. She's always here. Um, you know, yeah, someone says, yeah, but she doesn't never tips properly. Oh, but come on, she's in every day, you know, or maybe she doesn't understand the, how we tip here. You know, she's maybe she's from a culture that doesn't tip. Whatever it is, whatever it is. Um, I think that that creates a far better relationship with customers. I just think that generally gossip should, on the whole, be discouraged. I think that we need to criticise people. I think we need to speak openly when um, when people are not performing well. But I think a general mantra is try not to say anything behind someone's back that you would not say to their face. And I'm not talking about someone who is just brazenly arrogant or rude, but just generally. Um, Try not to try not to kind of search for the negative and actually removing negativity from your mindset is actually not that far from it's not that different to removing a poison. It is a poison and it, it doesn't help at all. I mean, being cynical, being sarcastic are parts of their fun. I mean, let's not forget that. That's critical. And again, I'm going back to not being a kind of, you know, I don't want it to be a sort of hippie manifesto. But I think it's terribly important that we we try to remind ourselves that we're not any better than anyone else um, and that we can be absolutely freaking awful as well. And and that just to remove that, um, that poison is a good is a good thing. And what about the the role? So obviously, it's not like you you have boards of governors uh, every other day, and but you do have an ex, a top big senior team. And in those meetings, however many you might have, presumably with your wife as well on board, um, how do you manage the tension between getting the agenda items? rolled over and done with the place for meaningful conversation and listening and the time that that will take up that that that's a good question i mean i think meetings in particular are um are, should always be agenda driven um i i'm a very very precise timekeeper and i've also you know i've got a culture where people do not turn up late i mean they really don't it's quite amazing unless they've you know forgotten which they occasionally do that something's on um I, I, I think that it, it you, you just have to allow conversation in the gaps is the answer, Minter. I think that we have we have meetings. We have, you know, quite a lot of meetings. I think it's really important to understand the distinction between a meeting and a conversation. I, I think that a meeting without an agenda and without someone chairing it, someone driving it and without notes at the end is a conversation. And that's not to say that conversation isn't useful, but they're different things. Um, and so I would like to assume that the conversations happen in the gaps. And, and I think, you know, one can most easily apply that to saying, you know, in our, in one of our offices, we have in one room, we have eight kind of creative people, a couple of designers and, and some marketing people and some ideas people. 
and I know that they work extremely hard and that they turn up to meetings on time and that they use, you know, uh, formulas and spreadsheets. But but also I know they chat a lot between between those things. And 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 when I see them posting on their Instagram that four of them are out having a drink on a Friday night together, it fills my heart with absolute joy. And and I think that you have to remember also that the workplace and this, of course, has become quite a contentious matter, I think, post-COVID. The workplace for many people is their social hub. I mean, you know, it is it is where they make their friends. And um, and I think that, that, you know, most people don't have a huge number of friends um, just by virtue of the way the world is. Um, and um, and so, you know, it's critical that they're allowed to interact in that way because when you walk into your place of work, how you feel about that place massively informs how you function. It doesn't have to just all be about feelings of great joy and I love it here and my seat's so comfortable and I can chat when I feel like it. It has to be about, you know, I'm engaged, I'm motivated, I'm driven. You know, those are the things that keep me alive. I, I'm happy here, I'm treated with respect, it's a safe space, all that stuff, blah, 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 really important. But ultimately, this is the place where I'm a little bit hyped up. My God, I've got a lot to do. Um, I've got to get this done. That's all really important. But but I think, um, you know, the conversation must fill the gaps. That's probably, and the fun bits. And and um, I, I, I'm not an advocate of any of these contemporary notions of the four-day week or, or anything like that. Um, because I just cannot see how the work can be done. And I don't understand how small creative businesses can possibly operate like that. I think that that, that very clever high margin businesses possibly can, um, you know, creative agencies that are charging 250 grand to, you know, rebrand something relatively simply probably can because their margins, you know, 125 grand on that. And, all the rest of it, but in my businesses, we are going to have to work unbelievably hard. Um, but but in doing that, um, I think we're also acknowledging that for so many entrepreneurs, work life balance is is not a thing. You've got to, you're going to have to break your backside to, to make it work, and um, and I think that your your team are going to have to realise that. But but that doesn't mean that they can't have fun at work and after work. Um, but I, 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 I don't buy into this kind of shorter Fridays and all this sort of stuff. I, I, and, and when people talk about productivity remaining the same in a four-day week, I, I don't believe it. I, I think well, it's not. Let, let's just say that, Charlie, if you uh, have a business that's open seven days a week in like a hotel or a restaurant, uh, someone has to do the work, clean the dishes every day. So it seems a little anachronistic with that type of rinse and repeat type of job, as you called it or something like that at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so Charlie, I want to end on uh, a couple of things that, or at least one thing that I, where I connect dots in your writing of the book. So you talk of course about the role of music in your life and, and uh, the arcade fire concert in Paris that you attended. You also say that art is as vital as oxygen uh, and and then you also write about uh, the the need to read, especially novels. So talk us through your impression of of inserting this in the work life <laughs> that you were just talking about. Yeah, 
Very, how do you bring that in? Yeah, I mean, music's been my my greatest companion and my greatest interest since I was about seven years old. And um, the only point that I didn't enjoy it, ironically, was when I was working in the industry for about eight years, when I made the mistake of conflating an enthusiasm with with um, with what the record industry would be like. Um, but culture, art, um, novels, um, and um, uh, and, and music are, are really what have given me my my oxygen to my life, and I think that um, I, I I can be moved by novels and by art more than I can be moved by anything else. I mean, I don't read um, non-fiction ever. I mean, maybe if I read, I mean, I probably read thirty to fifty novels a year, and listen to a couple of autobiographies. Um, so for me, I think all life is contained in those things, all ideas. Um, art reflects back to me in a similar way. Um, and music speaks to me in a similar way. And they just, for me, are my my oxygen. And um, they're all things that I've really, I mean, music in particular was something that I discovered myself. Um, the Beatles, I think, even passed my parents by. Um, they, you know, we did not have contemporary music in my family life at all. Um, I was taught very well at school in literature, so that was very helpful. And art, I've just educated myself about because I love it. And I look at art every day online. Um, I I buy more art than I um, should do. Um, I go to galleries all the time. Um, it just speaks to me and, and it interests me. And, and I, I don't think we can ever define what it is, or I, I find it hard. I mean, I think a critic could no doubt define what it is, and people try endlessly that that arouses our senses in these things. But I think it's something so so emotional and 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 almost non-cerebral that um that that it that it gets me going in a big way. And I I we actually now have endlessly talked to our customers about the things that interest us. We have through various businesses um either bi-monthly or monthly newsletters that go out with books and records and exhibitions and restaurants that we like. Um, and I also believe in the, a workplace that has attractive things on the walls and good, um, you know, and, and, and that inevitably involves, you know, art. I mean, I don't think there's much high art involved, um, but we have, you know, we have nice things on the wall. We have a nice atmosphere. We encourage the discussion of, of books. I mean, only only yesterday, two two of my team were recommending um, a um, a Booker Prize winning author's most recent book, and they both read it. And I just thought, God, these are just the kind of conversations I want to have. And the people, you know, we're not an inter we're not a group of intellectuals by any means, but but I mean, those are the things I I find it crucial to have some good books in the office, some magazines, some some people you know, that appreciate things, whatever it is, whether it's clothes or, you know, plants or whatever. I think those are really important things. Love it. Well, I, I'm, I, I write nonfiction for my sins and I write about conversation. I talk often about the art of conversation. And the last article I published was actually the conversation of art. Oh. And um, enjoyed that play. Charlie Gladstone, so lovely to chat and hear your convictions and your experience, the foibles, the family, uh, the fun, lots of Fs in there. Uh, how can someone go get your 
book, Charlie, which was a delightfully fun, candid read on, on how to lead and get the most out of your people and, and follow you, track you down. What are the best ways? Well, okay, first things first. Sorry. I, of course, have only ever written two books and they're fiction because they're non-fiction because they're far, it's far too difficult to write fiction for me. Ah. Um, but I, and I, and I think, but I think that, you know, novels can inform the, the way that we think about life just as much as books about how we should behave. Um, my book, Do Book, is, uh, Do Team is published by the Do Book Company. Um, and it's available from literally all good booksellers. And um, if people would are interested in um, any of my work, I have a small sort of holding page website called charliegladstone.com that, that um, they can contact me through if they're so interested um, and just have a glance at some of the projects that I'm working on at the moment. But um, I'm not really here to sell anything. I'm just here because you're a very interesting and engaging man to um, speak to. And that's what I like. That's what I like doing most of all, Minter. Thank you See? for the honour of it. My pleasure, Charlie. Thank you for coming on. Lovely to talk with you and look forward to an in real life hug. And, uh, catch yeah, absolutely. Up. Um, thank you. Lovely. Anyway, it's genuinely nice to see you, Minter. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minter Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man here in these confines. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man. Put me to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.